Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open uh, your Bible up to Acts 2. We're continuing our study um, through just sections of the book of Acts. And the name of the series, as you can probably see by the big sign that's behind me, is called Ignite. We wanted to make it big enough, that way everybody could see it. Even if you have bad eyesight, you left your glasses at home, it's big enough, you can see it. So we're all about igniting change in our lives. But the way that we ignite change in our lives is not by our own doing. It's not because that we're good enough, it's not because we're capable enough, it's because we're crazy enough to believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ that he has given us a power that is greater than ourselves to accomplish things in this life that are greater than what we can think or imagine, that somehow, some way, because of Jesus and his Holy Spirit, that we, it's a big idea, that we would be able to bring hope into the world. But something has to spark and ignite in each and every one of us. For the movement to take place, it has to spark in us. Now, I've been in this series for a couple weeks. And I thought that this day we're talking about something that has been one of the most divisive things in the church. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about capital C, the universal church. Because this text... People have have formed opinions about this text, and people have have been taught things about this text, and people have had experiences about this text, and many of them, I would say, I'm I'm not pushing them away, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but what I'm saying is, let's strip all of those things away, and let's just see what the Word of God says. Can we do that this morning? But before we jump into this... I want us to, even if you don't believe this quote, uh, there's a, a quote by the name, or a, a, by a guy by the name of Vance Havner that I want to put up. I'd never heard of this individual. He was a, a very well-known pastor for decades, and he, he was an author. But he, 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 I found this quote, and I thought this would be the great way for us to launch into this text, that we, the church... Now, this is speaking of Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're kind of, you know, you've like done the church thing and you're not fulfilled and you're, you're here and you're kicking the tires on the whole Christian thing, I welcome you. I understand that, that you may have a lot of questions and those questions take time to answer. I invite you into this place. We are always a place that is for those who have been either, who, who are looking or maybe not even looking, but yet we believe that Jesus is the answer. And I believe if you would depress into us just a little bit more that you'd be convinced of that as well. So this is speaking of Christians. We are not going to move this world by the criticism of it. The Christians, we're not to sit back and think that the world is is our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. Amen? That's our enemy. If you're a follower of Jesus, your enemy is Satan. It's not other people. So for us, we're not going to be able to move this world and change this world, ignite a change in this world, in our country, in our city, in our county, in your home, in your school, in your workplace, if we criticize it. So we we can't have a level of criticism, nor can we conform to it, is what it says in the next line. We can't become like the world if we want to reach the world. We have to do something that contrasts the world's system. It says, but by the combustion with it of lives. Whose lives is that speaking of? Ours. By the combustion of the lives, 
ignited, there's our word, by the what? Holy Spirit. It's ignited by the Holy Spirit. This has to be a move of God in and through us. This is not a move of ourselves. We don't have the ability. You are not smart enough. You have not had the best experiences. You have been tainted in so many different ways. You don't have the power within yourself to move this world in the direction that we need to have it moved. Only by the Holy Spirit's power within you. So is the power yours? No, it's the Holy Spirit in you and through you. We do have a part to play. But it's possible because God's done it before. But many of us, we, even in this room, we come from a bunch of different, uh, different backgrounds. And we've, we look at this and we talk about being ignited by the Holy Spirit. But many of us have formed opinions on the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to kind of paint a picture as to some of those opinions. Some of us, if we've had like a... Uh, maybe a Presbyterian background. It's like you don't talk about the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit's there. It's like, you know, it's, it's kind of there, but you stand back. You're more stoic, more intellectual, non-expressive. Your worship is very, very, I would say, kind of starchy. It's like it's just there, and you're not going to raise your hand. Like, you're not raising your hand in worship. You're not raising a finger in worship. It's like it would get weird in a hurry, and everybody would look at you. Right? You wouldn't do that. I would say, you know what, Presbyterian, that, that whole bent, they love Jesus, and amen for that, and that's great. Their expression of worship is a little bit different. Many of us, many of us come from a Baptist kind of background. If you've had some influence with a Baptist church, raise your hand. Okay? Most of us, right? I didn't ask the Presbyterians to raise their hand because they wouldn't have, and that would have been weird. <laughs> But the, most of us have had some experience with the Baptist thing. And you know what? In the Baptist realm, we kind of go through, and I've had some experience with this as well. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying they're different. And many of them have formed opinions based on the topic that we're going to discuss today. So I just want to get it all out on the table before we jump into the Word. Many of us, we come from the Baptist realm. It's like we talk about it. It's like you talk about the Holy Spirit, but, but yet you're fearful of the Holy Spirit. Because there's this line of thinking is, man, if I release the Holy Spirit, weird things are going to happen. And when weird things happen, I feel weird. And if I feel weird and the Holy Spirit does weird things, then it doesn't seem right and we get scared. Because then we're worried about our experience rather than the one who is the giver of the experience. We have other, uh, other folks in here. I mean, we, we have really grown and really changed so many different cultures in here and religious experiences. And whether it's, it's, and we've even had a bunch of, of Methodists, and their style of worship is, is more liturgical. It's kind of more, you know exactly what's going to happen. It's like, it's, you know, it's 1035, and you know what's happening at 1035 here and in every other Methodist church around the country. You know what I mean? It's like, that's just the way it is. And that's fine. They love Jesus, and everything's great. We have some in the Mennonite tradition. It's like, they love Jesus, and their, their practice, of, or their worship practice, is different too. And yet we have others, and I would say that, now this is, there's a shift we have others, even under this roof today, who we would say are a little bit more charismatic. And I would say this is a little bit more of where we are as a church. Because a care, to be a charismatic, which, mean, which really is derived from the word charismata, which means spiritual gifts. So we believe in spiritual gifts. We believe that God has gifted every follower of Jesus with at least one spiritual gift. So if you call me a charismatic, I'm all for it. I'm good with that. I've been called much, much worse. 
But yet, we, we're, we're not afraid of that, and we express ourselves in worship, and, and we, we're seeking to, to exalt Jesus. We don't worship our experiences. We worship Christ in our experiences. The reason why we have a band that does the things we do and, and all of that is not to bring attention to themselves. We're not all about the band. We're not all about the songs. We're all about Jesus. That's it. And yet, because many of us had, we've had other experiences. And I would say these are more of the, the hyper-charismatic experiences. Or I would also say hyper, you know, not just charismatic, but charismaniac kind of experiences. People flopping on the floor, flying like airplanes, doing the worm. And st- I've never been able to do the worm. Even in the 80s, I could not break dance. I was terrible at that. It's like we've had, we, we have that, and many of us, we've had like a knee-jerk reaction. We sit and look at all of these things, whether it's on television or your experience, and we see all of the craziness that is done, quote-unquote, in the name of Jesus, and we sit back and we question and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. And the tendency is this, church. The tendency is to say any movement of the Holy Spirit is bad because of the experiences that people claim to have had. In the name of the Holy Spirit. Y'all get that? So our tendency is to stand back and, yeah, 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 Holy Spirit, I get it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, that's where we are. We're tracking on with that, but good night. Let's not have any of that happen in the church because something crazy might happen. But I would tell you, we're all about Jesus. But you can't be all about Jesus without having a God, the Father. And you can't be all about Jesus without the events that are going to be talked about in Acts 2. Shall we jump in? Let's do so. When the day of Pentecost came, verse 1, they were all together in one place. So this is the church at this time, about 120. Remember, they had 12, went down to, uh, down to 11, 12. Now we have 120 people, and they're all together. This is, this, they're not even a church yet. These are just People, just people, people, and they're, some are curious, some are, are, are disciples that were disciples of Jesus, the family members of Jesus, and there are some people who are just spectators looking on, you know, just kind of wondering what in the world is going on. Something's going on here, but I don't know what it is. But they're all together. They're all together. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is a movement of God. This is not a movement of man. This is not because someone sat up there in a white coat and started putting his hand on people's foreheads and all of a sudden crazy stuff started happening in the church. This is a movement of of God. This this book, the book of Acts, is a historical account of what happened in the early church. And I would say, right up to this point, the 120 people, many of them, had walked with Jesus, had been taught by Jesus. He was their rabbi. And when he died, they became fearful. Jesus had been talking about this idea of the kingdom of God, and they had an expectation of the kingdom of God, but they had no idea at this point even what that meant. They'd heard about it. They were curious. They wanted it. But their reality was different. You see, their, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, and, and ultimately their Savior had died and was crucified. 
Pentecost happened 50 days after, only 50 after the resurrection. Think about this. The memory of all of the, of the events of Jesus and, and the Passover, uh, of the, the whole Passion Week and all the things that had happened. Now all of a sudden, they're all together in one place and I would just say this, they were scared to death. They were fearful. They were worried. And I bet many of them doubted. They were human. They're not robots. And they're all together. I would say this, just because of, I've read the rest of this specific book, they were starting to rely on each other. And they were, they were together in one place, much like we're in one place today, in, in trying to draw strength from one another. And they needed exactly what was happening here. Back again to verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that, that, that separated and came to rest on each of them. Fire in Scripture is just, for us, it's a picture of the presence of God. So God is involved on this day. This is not, you know, some group, they've had some bad mushrooms and all of a sudden they're seeing the same thing and wow, these are crazy lights and all this stuff. All of this happened. This is a direct movement of God. And you see, the presence of God is there. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You see, here's the, here's the part where people kind of, you're, you're, you already have a formed opinion and all of a sudden you are either listening more intently to try and prove me wrong or you're listening because you're curious or you're listening because you're like, yeah, what do you got to say about this because what, I, what I've experienced and what I've heard is something different. I want to tell you this, before we, we go into all of your opinion and your experiences, I'm not pushing back on those, but I want to get into the word. The tongues that's being referenced here is a Greek word, dialectos. And it literally means languages. Or what we would, it's, it's a derivative of the word that we use, dialects. So these are literal languages that are happening here. This is a supernatural event as the Holy Spirit is enabling them, but this is a direct movement of God. And the way that there's, there's some things that are happening here, we see the presence of fire, let you know that it's the presence of God. But then also, they are being given abilities to be able to speak in other languages. This is a historical account of the early church. When you look at the book of Acts, the purpose really of the book of Acts, not only is to give glory to God, but also as to see what God did early on in the early church. And real, things really start moving fast at this point. If you would hold your place in Acts 2, and I, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to show you there's a, a little bit different thing that's happening here. 1 Corinthians 14. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of draw this, this contrast of this word dialectos in glossé, which is, is the word for tongues that's used in 1 Corinthians 14. Now most of this is going to be kind of uh, have the screen to lead us on this. Um, you can write these things down later. I want you to really process these. But this is the word of God. Dialectos means language or speech. 
known language or speech. That's what this is. So in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, everybody was together. They started speaking, and we're going to see this really as we press on, starting at verse 5 through the rest of our text. They're speaking known languages. The purpose of Acts 2 is getting the gospel out. Most of the people who were here were Jewish people. The movement of God started with Jewish people and spread out to the Gentiles. We'll see that in the weeks to come. But these people were going to be released with different languages to go, really, to go all over that part of the world to spread the gospel message in languages that, that, of the people, the native languages of the countries that they would go to. Now, looking at the screen... Glossé means unknown language. It means it's not known to us. So right here, this is the dividing line because many of us think that, now this is, this is the Greek word, but many of us go through and we say, no, 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 speak in tongues, that's like, that's all gibberish. And you know what? It is an unknown language. So it would be gibberish to you if you don't have that gift, the gift of interpreting that. You can have the gift and not have the gift of interpretation. So there's, there's a contrast you see in verse 10, in chapter 14, verse 10 through 12, something else. It's not a foreign language. It's not a foreign language. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker. He is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager to, to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. He's like, there's all kinds of languages in the world, and he's talking about this, this gift of speaking in tongues. And he says, there's all kinds of these in the world, and this is not one of them. This is not... This is not English. This is not Latin. This is something different. This is an unknown language. This is a foreign language. Verse 2, you see something else. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So anyone who speaks in a, in a tongue, speaking in tongues, is not speaking to men. They're speaking to God. It is a prayer language. That's what it's about. This church, the, the First Corinthians, and the church in Corinth, got a lot of things wrong. This is about, this is approximately 20 years after the day of Pentecost. So this is a practice that had been happening. So chapter 2, or rather, uh, verse 2, and then 12 through 17. So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church... For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. So he says, you could be doing that, and you could be thinking, man, I'm, I'm doing this right, but what you're not doing is you're not taking into account why you're doing it, and you're not taking into account the people that are around you. And this is, this is a, a prayer language not to each other, but to God. 
And if you see someone, this is going to be firm, because I know that, that many of you probably watch television shows. You, you, you watch these shows on the religious channels where somebody just speaks in tongues and just goes all over the airwaves. There's no one there to interpret, and it just goes out, and, and whether it's in this country or another, and all of a sudden you sit back from that, and, and what I'm saying is they're doing it wrong. If that's the case, and they're just, they're just spewing it out there, they're doing it wrong. Because it's not supposed to just be spoken unto people. That's not the purpose. The purpose of every spiritual gift, tongues, encouragement, mercy, compassion, helps, whatever it is, is not for our benefit. It's to give God the glory. As a matter of fact, it says that in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, no matter what, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do. Do it to the glory of God. You see, there's a personal benefit too. Verse 4, it says, He who speaks in a, in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies or preaches edifies the church. So there's a personal benefit that it's a prayer language between the individual and God. It's not a gift that I have, by the way. But it's, it's a language between the person and God. Not between us. It's not that a, that a pastor, preacher, teacher should sit up amongst the people and, and just and do it. It's something that should be done between that person and God. There's a personal benefit, but God gets the glory. He has to. And I would say this, pressing in just a little bit more. The idea of a, there's a proper usage of glossé. And this is very, very, very important that we kind of grasp this. When we're supposed to use it, when we're not supposed to use it. Verse 23 says, For if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some of you do not understand, or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? How, is that not true? Is that not true? Just think about that. When you see that, if you, if you don't have the gift of interpretation and you see somebody who's on television and they're, and they're doing their thing, right? I, I could mock it, but I'm not going to. And like they just do their thing and you sit back and my first inkling is what? I don't know what they're saying. They're kind of out of their mind. They're kind of, they're kind of crazy. That's my first inkling. I'm just being honest. That's, that's where my mind goes. I'm not saying that, that, that glorifies God, but, but I'm telling you, that's my experience because I sit back and I'm thinking, okay, I know what the Bible says about using it, and if they're using it that way, who's benefiting from it? The individual? Or are we giving God the glory? Who's getting the attention, God or the individual? So there's a proper usage of this. We have to think of our audience. It's not just, it's not just a matter of us. We have to think about who's around us when, when using this gift of speaking in tongues. Verse 23, we just read. Verse 12 says, So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Speaking in tongues is a personal prayer language. If that's the case, it would not really have a large purpose within the body of Christ. The purpose would be more as far as going through and saying, okay, this, this exists, this between me and God, I have to know my audience. There could be unbelievers here. 
Why would, why, why would we in this place come forward and, and use those gifts if we know that it's going to drive unbelievers away? We have created an environment within this place that welcomes unbelievers and unbelief in so many ways that we would come together, that we would worship and glorify God, that they would see our worship and they would not just be a part of our worship, but they would see the God that we're worshiping. Say this, people who who have the gift of tongues still have control. They still have control. It's not an out-of-the-body experience, like many people that we see doing that wrong, and it seems to be an out-of-the-body experience. Verse 26 says this, What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction or revelation, a tongue or an interpretation? All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two Or at the most, three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So if if we know there are unbelievers here, we shouldn't do it publicly. It's always under control. This this section uh, in 1 Corinthians 14 is... Is, is Paul is trying to gain order back in a worship service because it had just gone flat crazy in that church. And he's trying to get the order of all of these, these people and experiences. He's trying to bring them all together. That's just what the Bible says. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. That's just what the Bible says. I know your experience would be, it would probably say something else, but I can't, I can't base my life and my practice in... in and really the ministry of this church off anything other than the Word of God. And I have to tell you, for years, I was taught something other than this. I was. But then when you go through and you read the Word of God, then you start to understand, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Have I been believing something of man, or have I been believing something of God's Word? And it left me felt wanting. Finishing this section, in verse 33, talking about the proper usage of that, it is always to be done in an orderly way. Verse 33 says this, For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He's not a God of disorder where everybody would fall out and everybody would do their thing and we would get all about the experience. He's a God of peace, not a God of disorder. The reason why we come together in this place is not to sit together and sing songs. And the reason why I get up here to preach to you is not because I think I have something eloquent to say or because I think I'm, I'm the best person to be able to say it. It's because I've been, I've been changed by, by the truths that are in this word and because I believe there's power in the word of God by the spirit of God living through me and I want you to have the same thing. I want to glorify God in the way that I love you and the way that you love other people. That's, that is the core of our worship. If our worship be for anything else other than the glory of God, we've settled for lesser things. Back to our text. Acts 2. 
Verse 5 says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Several people. Jerusalem. All these people are in Jerusalem. Told you before that the that the city of Jerusalem only had twenty to thirty thousand people in it under normal normal time, but in a time of festival or, or celebration or the ceremonial times, there would be just I mean just hundreds of thousands of more people would come all into that region. So this is not inconsistent with what we see through other books. So all these people are together, every nation under heaven, it says. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, you always have this in the crowd. Some, however, made fun of them and said, well, they've just had too much wine. We're going to see Paul addresses that. That's actually going to be like the intro to the next sermon, so that's an interesting way to jump into a sermon, talking about um, somebody getting drunk, but they're not actually drunk, so it's okay. But if you look at this, and you see the supernatural act of God, that everybody's together, God ordained this, God is sovereign, He's got a plan, He's got a purpose behind this. Everybody's together, they're released Everybody, now at this point, rather, they're going to be released, but they've been given a, a supernatural ability to speak in other languages and that it would make sense. So these were normal people, supernatural act of God, given the ability in, in Acts 2 to speak different languages to forward the gospel message. But they were broken people. They were doubtful people. They were fearful people. Before this happened, I bet they had no idea what was going to happen. But yet the very, the, the very movement of God that you see here is consistent. It was actually, it, it was prophetic. Uh, John the Baptist said it was going to happen in Luke 3.16. He said it was going to happen. He says, I baptize with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. It's Jesus. The straps of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So they knew it was coming. At least they had been told it's coming. They didn't live in that reality. And yet this, this movement of God that we're going to see, and it's, it's such a foundational, it's such a cornerstone to, for us to understand about a movement of God, of how we need to rely upon one another. Because they were together and afraid, and they would be scattered at this point. Right after this, they would be scattered, and all uncertainty would have vanished. Fearful when they were in, them, in and of themselves, but the Spirit of God ignites a change in a movement. And it's that very movement of God that changed the rest of the world.
It's that same movement of God that you see in Acts 2 that has been in the same thing, and we have felt just the, the ripple effect of that for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. And this day, this truth, the events of Pentecost have been something that have really, that they not only brought these people together, but it's the Spirit of God has brought us all together. Some scripture I want to share with you about this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it'll be on the screen. It says this, speaking of Christians, Christians, for we are all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all given the one Spirit to drink. See, I love this because it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what cultural background you have. It doesn't even matter what all of your experiences and all the things that you have done and kind of gone through. If you're from whatever part of the country or the world, Christians all are one body. Every race, every creed, every tribe, every nation, we are one body. Whether Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, we're all given one spirit to drink, the Holy Spirit. We've all received the one Holy Spirit, and it's the very thing that binds us, and it's the very thing that sends us at the same time. Ephesians 1.13 says this, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Having believed, this is after you have, you have, you know, you've, received Jesus, that he has said, come follow me, and you have, you've acknowledged him, and he has drawn you to himself, and you've surrendered your will to his, having believed, you are marked with him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So there's some change that should happen in your life because you've been marked by the Holy Spirit. I'll get to that in just a minute. There should be some changes that happen in your life because you've been marked by the Holy Spirit. Because if you have the power of God living within you, that means there's a greater potential already in you, but you may not be living in that reality. Sin could very well be the boundary that's keeping the Spirit of God from really moving in your life. That's why we need to go before the Lord consistently. Maintain fellowship with with Him and with other people. Cleanse ourselves of all unrighteousness, all, all stubbornness and all sin. We need to go before Him and just ask Him for forgiveness of those things. Take into account our brokenness, asking Him to come in. And then in return, we, we, we live in the Spirit's power and a power that's greater than ourselves. There's also another scripture. Romans 8, 9 says this, You, however, Christians... You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. So there's a contrast. You either live in the Spirit of your flesh, that means your own desires, your own will, everything you want to do, or you live in the desires that have been fed by the Holy Spirit. It's either one or the other, either the flesh or the Spirit. A lot more I could say about that. But I want to get to this. The best way that you can tell, there are a lot of different ways, but the, but the best way that you can tell if the Holy Spirit's living within you is how well you love other people. If there's any one indicator in your life to say, uh, do I, do I, okay, do I, I have this, I've, I've received Jesus, having believed, that's what Ephesians says, having believed that I've received this, 
this, this promise, this seal of the Holy Spirit. The way that you can tell, one great way you can tell, is how well you love other people. But not just a love and just a, you know, a pat on the back kind of love, but a self-sacrificing love. Because that love, agape love, is the love that it's really the love of God unto you and that we're to give unto others. It, it's a love that the world does not know. They only know it through us. How well do you love other people? You see, self-sacrificing love goes out and says, you know what, I, I love you so much that when I go to my workplace, that I, I love you so much that when I go to my workplace, I realize that I have, a, I have a part to play to share the gospel in my workplace. And if for some reason that people oppose me, that's okay. Because it's a self-sacrificing love. It's not about me. It's about the love of Christ that I have, that I've received, and that I'm extending. It's not about us. A self-sacrificing love is also known in this way. How well you forgive other people. You see, if you hold on to bitterness and you take the line, and you go to Ephesians 4.31, and you just go all the way through that. About, it talks about bitterness, and this is not in the order that it's in, but bitterness, anger, slander, malice. And you kind of you go through that whole line of Ephesians 4.31. I just have to tell you, you, you're, you may be, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you haven't received Christ, that you're not saved, but I'm, I can tell you this, you're not living the fullness that he promises. If you, want to, if you want the Spirit's presence in your life and to know, to know, to know that you are living in a way that honors Jesus and the Holy Spirit is flowing through you, ask yourself this question. How well am I forgiving other people? When people offend me, do I hold on to that offense or do I let go of it and say, you know what, I'm to forgive you just as the Lord Jesus has forgiven me. I'm to forgive you just as the Lord Jesus has forgiven me. I'm to forgive you just as the Lord Jesus has forgiven me because I know that I myself, I have offended God, but I have received forgiveness. Therefore, I must extend forgiveness. You see, that's dying to ourself. That's self-sacrificing love. That's not being a doormat. That's just saying, you know what? I'm not living my life for the glory of me. I'm living my life for the glory of God. Another way to know about this idea of self-sacrificing love is, is how well I've, we, I showed you from the Word of God that the Holy Spirit, it, the Holy Spirit binds us together and also sends us. And we're going to see that right now. They're bound and they're going to be sent as we press on through the book of Acts. But how well are you loving people within this body? How well are you doing that? Or do you come in and you hide behind your personality and your experiences and I don't like this and I don't like that. I would just say that's not a self-sacrificing love. That's not a love that, that is, is really a picture of Jesus because Jesus, his love was, well, let's just think what he did. Mighty is the power of the cross. That's his love. That's self-sacrificing love. That he would look upon me and he would look upon you, Christian. And he would look upon you, those who are not Christians. And he would look upon you and say, you know what? In your brokenness, I died for you. You had no 
way to be right with God again. But I went to the cross for you. You have no power within your own being to live the life that you want to live. But because the day of Pentecost, the events of the day of Pentecost, and that's been lived out that now Christians have the Holy Spirit, He has given us what we don't deserve. Did you think about that? He's given us what we don't deserve. And for us, the way that we're going to create and ignite this movement within our own lives and our own family is to give people what they don't deserve. And that is the bare bones message of self-sacrificing love. That's what that is. If I would have only received what I deserve, I'd have probably, I don't know where I would be. But see, I remember the day that I got saved. And I remember, I remember how, how my inner being was challenged by the love of God and understanding that, I have, that God has loved me in such a way that he sent his son to die on a cross for me. And that all of a sudden, I remember when I was 21 and I was walking down that aisle and, and I, I went before on that altar at that church and I surrendered my life to Jesus and I said, you know what, I sense your love and I, you said, come follow me and I am following Jesus. See, I remember that, but I also remember how wicked that I am and I remember how sinful I was before he received me. And though I haven't been doing it perfectly, but I have been trying to do it increasingly, since then I've been trying to live a life through the Spirit of God that loves people better, even than what I've been loved by other people. Amen. You want the Spirit of God? Do you want the Spirit of God? Do you want the Spirit of God? That's a question. Yeah. Good answer. You can have it. You can have it. You shouldn't fear it. You should welcome it. If His Holy Spirit comes in your life and He changes you and He, he, he reforms you and remakes you, it's something more beautiful, it's something more powerful, and it's something more impactful. And I have to tell you, if you're a Christian, you already have it in you. You already have it in you. How well are you loving other people? How well are you, how well are you, are you able to just shrug off the struggles of life? See, many of us, we, we embrace our struggles and our hardship. And we, we hold on to those. And we allow those things to define our story. We hold on to those things and we just hold on, I'm so tight and I've gone through this and you don't know what I've gone through and I've gone through this and, and you hurt me and all of these things happen. You see, when the power of God comes in our life, what happens is you release the power of those things to say, you know what, I am not being, my story is not my brokenness, my story is my mending. And that's the work of God. That's what I want for you, that's what I want for me. My hope for you is that there's been something about this message that has challenged your heart. Maybe there's a person, a specific name that you have been hold, withholding forgiveness. Maybe the, uh, there's a specific person where you know you're supposed to go talk to them and yet you're not. 
Maybe for you that you've been challenged, that maybe you're not walking, and you're not, you, you're, you've started following Jesus, but then somewhere along the way you've kind of gone your way, your own way, and you need to go back to him. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing, but I trust that he's doing something. And I would just say this. Obey it. Thank you.